over the past few years in conversation with a number of our members and those preparing for baptism, the question of Satan has come up, along with the realities the name conjures, the images even from medieval devils with pitchforks to fire and brimstone fundamentalism. Maybe the name brings to mind the off-color character, the church lady of Saturday Night Live of past decades, who was oft quoted by my friends. When confronted with anything vexing or troubling to her churchy sense of propriety, the church lady would ask, could it be Satan? (laughs) Maybe we should laugh a bit, both at ourselves and the image of Satan. Martin Luther famously quipped, perhaps thinking in some ways of today's gospel reading, the best way to drive out the devil, if he will not yield to texts of scripture, is to jeer and flout him, for he cannot bear scorn. Similarly, a great 20th century theologian, Karl Barth, was critical of the seriousness of the later German schools of theology when it came to the demonic. He asked, How can we make clear the victory of Christ? In this way, when speaking of sins, demons, darkness, by not speaking of them in too tragic a manner, like the German theologians, all so serious. The further north you go in Germany, the more they are concerned with the realm of darkness. And if you move into the Scandinavian countries, all is darkness, God against Satan, and vice versa. It is not wise to be too serious. Perhaps Bart too addresses the apparent need of some of our sisters and brothers today to find a demon under every rock, every tree, in every book or way of life of which they do not approve. So with our general discomfort with Satan, what do we do with this famous reading from Luke today? so vivid with its depiction of a fasting Jesus in the wilderness, pitted against the devil, the personification of temptation and darkness. Perhaps it might behoove us to remember that the biblical understanding of the devil, and probably Jesus' understanding too, was a little bit less about medieval art and horns and pitchforks than it was about the mystery of all that ailed creation and the human family. Demons were held widely accountable for disease and distress of all kinds. Humanity was struggling constantly with an invasion of forces beyond our control, and it was an invasion that was within us as much as from the outside. And so personifying these terrible things in our lives, externalizing and objectifying them, was one understandable way 2,000 years ago of doing exactly what we do today in a slightly different way. Whether it's through medical science or meteorology, objectifying and studying the dangerous things in us or in our world, from virulent pathogens to dangerous weather patterns, We put one under the microscope to objectify it. We launch satellites in orbit for the other to keep an eye on things. It seems to me our real risk as 21st century Christians this Lent 
is that we might throw out the baby of the profound teaching of Jesus in the wilderness with the bathwater of metaphor. We do this in one of two ways. Either we dismiss this story from Luke as somehow quaint. That is, that this story about Jesus and the devil is just an artifact of late antiquity, based on a worldview to which few of us fully subscribe. Or we go to the opposite extreme and treat it as so reified, so, so pious, that it must be somehow beyond who we are and where we are. That is, we could say that Jesus, as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, is the only one qualified to grapple with the tempter in this way. Only this great Olympic gold medalist, this first athlete of spirituality, would have the moxie to confront such an event. Go, Jesus, we shout from the stands, and might feel inspired, yet unchallenged ourselves. But both of those extremes dismiss what is a very powerful spiritual lesson. One that Luke places so masterfully before us this first Sunday in Lent. A lesson that, to my mind at least, cannot be overstated in its importance for us as Christians. For this gospel passage speaks to the very foundation, the very heart of human temptation. And I don't mean Satan, but to the heart of our humanity, whether we are first century or 21st century Christians. Jesus is not simply dropping verses of scripture to contradict the devil or entertain or impress us. He's talking to his own heart and quite vividly to ours. My spiritual director is fond of pointing to a teaching by the great contemplative and Cistercian monk, Thomas Keating. To paraphrase his teaching, Keating notes that there are three centers of need that each one of us has at the very basis of our person, in the very foundation of who we are as creatures of God. The first is the need for safety, for shelter, food, a sense of security. The second is the need for power, control, some influence at least over our own destinies and the world around us. And the third is the need for the esteem of others to know that we are loved. Any time one of these needs or a number of them in combination are threatened or undermined, we most often respond with our most basic emotional reactions of fear or anger. Or we do something silly like giving up something profoundly important, just as figures of scripture do from Esau in Genesis, giving up his birthright because he's hungry to the ancient Israelites going after false gods, kings, and bread and circuses, testing God because they do not trust the love the divine has for them. 
For me, Keating's teaching illuminates today's gospel reading, and it reveals that Jesus is struggling in the wilderness, not with the great battles of the Son of God, like Clash of the Titans, but rather with the same kind of needs we all struggle with as human beings. No matter where or when we find ourselves, our hunger, our desire for control, and are seeking out proof of God's love for us. The refusal to give into any or all three, the renunciation of these essential desires to dominate and control him, is about Jesus gaining spiritual mastery of his own ego, of offering these desires and fundamentally his life back to God. And in doing so, he gains a kind of faith in his journey in the wilderness that commends itself to all of us. Bread is not enough by itself. A spiritual truth that goes back to our reading today from Deuteronomy, where the first fruits, the first bread, if you will, is offered back to God the God who gave the land to a people seeking a new home. Because God knows how easy it is for us to satiate our own hunger, and then we forget the source from which all our sustenance comes. Only when we remember first from where all our life arises can we truly offer thanks for the bread we receive and embrace the humility of our dependence on God and God's creation. This is why we pray before we eat and why we are called to give before we take, save, and spend for ourselves. Power over our own destiny is perhaps one of our greatest preoccupations. But all of us who have been caught in that quixotic pursuit at one time or another know that it gets us in trouble sooner or later. We can risk ending up consumed by our own power. History is replete with those who succumb dramatically to this temptation and the havoc they have wrought on thousands and sometimes millions of other lives. We know their names almost as well as our own. Think Napoleon, Hitler. Jim Jones, you can name more. Jesus knew some as well, some of the kings of ancient Israel from the traditional stories he heard in synagogue as a youth. Perhaps Caesar of his day, or the despotic governors Rome sent to rule Israel from Jerusalem with an iron fist. Maybe he thought of some of the corrupt religious authorities he knew he was going to have to confront sooner or later. Now, most of us are not in a position to do as much damage as they did, but if we give into our own desire for power and allow it to dominate us, we find ourselves dangerously encapsulated in and blind to our own weaknesses. And even our greatest gifts can then turn into curses. Finally, we so desperately want at some level to know that we are loved. 
Jesus is drawn by temptation to the center of his world, to the very top of the temple, so that he might throw himself off it to test God's love for him. We so often succumb to this desire, and we do it in ways that look like this. Whatever it takes to test and earn the love and esteem of others is all that matters. It's an occupational hazard for me, one that I must always be vigilant about. If I give in, I can drive others close to me simply crazy, and leadership eludes me. It's how we become codependent, easily manipulated, and servile. It's how we lose our unique identity gifted to us by God. And as a matter of faith, we risk falling into the trap of forgetting God's love for us, its abundance, the way it overflows. The problem for us and for Jesus is once we start testing God's love for us, we might never stop. What if Jesus does jump from the top of the temple? God saves him. But then later on, he doubts his anointed calling or God's love for him again. Will he find a higher pinnacle from which to throw himself? Jesus knows the truth, that certainty about anything in this life, whether the mystery of God or the secrets of our own hearts, certainty about these is an illusion. Doubt is not the true enemy of faith. Certainty is. And my sisters and brothers in Christ, we do not love so that we may be loved by God back. You might pick that up on occasion in Christian circles, but it's dreadful theology. Don't heed it. Anyone who tells you that there is a way to be certain that we are loved is probably selling you something. And it might be something as simple as their own ego, their own need to be loved. We love because we have faith that God loved us first and goes on loving us in more ways than we can possibly imagine. We give because God, we believe, gave to us first from the food before us to the life that we have with all of its ups and downs. And we have faith, even if it's only as tiny as a mustard seed at times, because it was given to us in the midst of our own wildernesses by our God. And this faith, no matter how small it is for you today, has gotten you this far, hasn't it? It's from this lesson that Jesus gains true insight into his own human soul and into all of ours. And he teaches us by example that we should always choose God first, even when we are at bottom, down and out, at the edge and the end of everything. Because when we put God first, from that step flows all our true power in the spirit, the power to heal to serve, to love, to seek, to ask, to hold faith. From there, we can put aside our desperation and our grasping, 
Such is the challenge of Lent as we begin, walking with Christ through our wilderness, facing down and even laughing off our own inner demons, learning to shrug off the constant demands of our needful desires and accept, accept with open, outstretched hands the grace that already awaits us, the love of the broken bread and the shared cup, the gifts of Christ who has made us his own. The promise we have received that leads us into life. And life so that others may truly live. Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org. That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot org. We wish you God's peace, and we hope to be able to greet you in person very soon.